You know, this was an interesting Savage Wonder episode. This was an, an episode unlike any other I've really done. My guest today was Lonnie Hankins. And, you know, on the show, we talked to veterans who are artists and Lonnie, God knows she qualifies and she's a six-year army veteran, um, very talented writer, poet, visual artist. And um, so that ticks all the boxes that need to be ticked. Um, but there was a different tone, a different tenor to this interview, I felt. And I'm trying to put my finger on what it was that was different. And I think what it is, is because a lot of the trauma that she brings to her art is, first off, not based in combat from her military service, but rather trauma stemming largely from, it seems like I would say, two events. One, the sexual assault that she survived almost right after boot camp when she first got to Fort Riley, Kansas. And then secondly, the suicide of her buddy, which led her to start a podcast and a blog and kind of opened the floodgates for her to express herself that led to a lot of uh, of, of her books and her writing, and et cetera, et cetera. And I think the fact that she was a combat service support soldier, she was part of a female engagement team in her one deployment to Afghanistan, but she didn't leave the wire. And the fact that she's had the vision and the courage to speak authentically about her experience, even though it wasn't the sexiest thing ever, it wasn't the cool guy stuff, it wasn't the Hollywood movie stuff, the fact that it was um, incredibly traumatic and a trauma that probably is more commonplace than anyone would like to admit is powerful. And the fact that she's channeled her art into addressing um, some of those issues for herself, um, certainly, and if others, I think, take away lessons from it, I, I think she's, you know, that that's an intended second order effect. But she's done an awful lot of unpacking, and in her writing, um, that's what you come away with is, you know, how much there is for her to mine in these experiences and to figure out and to, um, you know, connect the dots in her life. And like I've said before, you know, I think a lot of what makes a veteran unique in general is the immense amount of significant emotional events packed into a short period of time, relatively speaking, that a veteran experiences. And Lonnie certainly has had that. And um, the fact that her art is so motivated by these, which we call them, incidental traumas to military service, um, uh, you know, kind of collateral damage of a military service, of a military career, is um, probably not as exceptional as we all wish it would be, but certainly articulating it and speaking to it uh, and, and creating art out of it, I think is. And Lonnie, I think, is doing great work in doing that. And I'm, I, I read her books, uh, her book, The Gaslit Heart, about her domestic abuse. I mean, I say it during the episode to her face, so I'm not talking behind her back. It's a tough read. Um, that doesn't mean it's not a good read, and that doesn't mean it's not a necessary read. Um, but certainly, um, you know, as a parent, uh, there's some moments in there that, that are rough. And uh, the fact that she um, had the dedication to put those experiences down 
and tie it to her military service, showing how the military service uh, didn't in some ways set her up for failure, but also provided her with the tools to manage and ultimately survive and thrive despite those circumstances, I think is important. And um, something that a lot of people, I think, would overlook. They'd simplistically look at it uh, as either a, a military is either being a good or a bad influence on those circumstances. And she shows that it's a lot more nuanced. It gave her a lot of tools to cope and survive. And um, there were also some downsides. Anyway, another beyond fascinating episode, I'm proud to say. And I'm, I'm really excited for you guys to hear directly from her. Um, I know I've talked a little bit more than I normally would before this episode, and I think it's because I'm still trying to kind of wrap my head around uh, the interview that we just did and uh, kind of what it meant to me and what I took away from it. Uh, And I think um, I'll be interested to know what y'all's feedback is. You know, let me know. Um, I'm really excited for you guys to hear from her, though. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the Artistic Director of the Veterans Repertory Theater, and this is The Savage Wonder of Lonnie Hankins. What's up, Lonnie? Another day in Kansas. <laughs> you just live in the Kansas stereotype, aren't you? Yeah, we almost got blown off the map last week. Did you? Yeah, were you part of that? Uh, Fort of Riley Ida? had 94 mile per hour winds. Holy and so, uh, I was literally watching the roofs like get ripped off the apartments here and the siding. Everything was just getting stripped. And it was just like, all right. Like, you were literally Dorothy in Kansas at that moment. Yeah, that was what my daughter was saying. She's like, where's Toto? <laughs> <laughs> like, Dude, that's yeah. crazy. Were people, um, did people get messed up around you? Were their houses damaged or anything like that? Uh, the post housing didn't seem like it held up very well, but that's like, it could be 20 mile an hour winds and things are going to go wrong with those. So 94 mile an hour winds, you had busted windows, just shattered sliding glass doors. Wow fighting gone uh people tying down trampolines to fencing and learning that that's not the best choice <laughs> so holy uh, crap and was this on post that you were seeing or was it off post as well Did the locals know about? i live off post because okay. i live over by k-state i live kind of nestled in the hills a little bit so we only had like 65 mile per hour winds oh that's nothing that's tropical oh, no. yeah oh that, that's that no problem easy. at all oh, yeah and uh <laughs> I mean, the windshield wipers on my car are missing, but I mean, besides that, <laughs> like, no, it's all good. But a uh, post was like, you got a free trampoline for Christmas. Like wow. <laughs> your neighbor didn't tie stuff down. So uh, yeah, it was a little, it got a little hectic. For are they more car. prepared for that on Riley or off? Like, is it too many recent PCS moves on Riley that they just don't know how bad Kansas can get? Um, you can tell I'm part of like the community Facebook stuff for like the post housing and stuff. So you can see a lot of like the spouses talking and you can tell most of them are not Midwesterners. And so high winds to them, we were in a tornado in their minds. Like it was a legit touchdown tornado, but no, there wasn't, it was just hell. (laughs) So, uh, a lot of people freak out and a lot of people, uh, don't really put stuff into perspective. You know, Kentucky got wiped out yeah. a little before us. And then yeah. here, like we were intact. I mean, there was damage, but we were intact. And uh, 
one of the power plants went down for the neighboring city. So they have no water. They're at a, like a state of emergency. But the people on Fort Riley, it was like, I can't charge my phone. I don't have TV right now. Can somebody fix my power? And people are like, in the real world, nobody would care. Like, you got to roll with it. It's, so, it's one of the few times that that uh, military folks are actually unrealistic in their expectations of what real problems look like. And the civilian population around there is probably a lot more realistic. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of expectation that your housing management can yeah. have yeah. some yeah. sort of say over your, your utilities. It's like the grid's down. Sorry. <laughs> like, get with it. Yeah. You know, it's like nobody's dead. Uh, like you, you just like, you got to put in a perspective for some, but then you have to kind of look at who a lot of the people are living on posts. They're young. Sure. Some are 18, 19 year old families. Like they're young yeah. and they just don't, they don't get it yet. They're not as seasoned. And so they just see it as what's happening in their household. They don't right. think like, Hey, my neighbor is suffering too. They're out of food, you know, because refrigerators are hot now. So it was like, kind of like, why don't you guys just work together? Right. Go talk to your neighbor right. for the first time ever and figure out if they need something. Right, <laughs> like, right, you know, right. Get off the tablet. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it put a lot of stuff into perspective for how unprepared everybody is. Was this the worst one you'd seen yet in all your time that you spent in Kansas? No, there's been actual, actual tornadoes and stuff like that. Chapman, which is not too far down I 70 from us, they get hit like every year. They like they rebuild every year. Really? <laughs> just like don't move the Chapman. Definitely don't have a trailer. Uh it's just stuff gets leveled there all the time. But I'm in the Flint Hills. So stuff happens, but for the most part in this area, you don't see anything too bad. It's all manageable. I've gotten pretty lucky over the last few years. I don't really lose power here very often, but wow. uh yeah, you can definitely tell people are not prepared that move to this area <laughs> and you still like it you still like kansas because i mean that's the thing it's one thing if you were from kansas and it was like yeah this is home this is what i'm used to but i mean you're you are very much an expat living in kansas so i mean but you're still you still dig it it's a it's a love-hate relationship <laughs> <laughs> like uh my goal is to not stay <laughs> so I uh I just haven't figured out where to go is my okay. biggest issue. It's more of like I know there's worse places. And so I haven't really left. We were supposed to PCS to Alaska last January and it got canceled last minute and my husband ended up deploying. And so I was ready to go, you know, live in the old frontier and yeah. <laughs> try to figure out what staying alive was like. Yeah. Get some then, earthquakes in the dark up there. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, fun. okay. It was like, so I was trying to transition like mentally for that. Like, okay. Like it's going to be dark a lot. Right. It's going to be bright a lot. <laughs> it's going to be cold. And it didn't happen. And then it was like, okay, I mean, more Kansas. Yeah. And so I can't really say I stay cause I like it. The Flint Hills is, Pretty in its own way. I grew up near the ocean. I rather look at water. Uh, I mean, if you look at the prairie, it's kind of the same thing. You can kind of see the same contours and the sea. Like you can imagine it. It's not oh, the same. Man. Like you got to. Yeah, like, no, it's really not there, the same. But, yeah. But, I think uh, any realtor like, will tell you it's not the same. Yeah. At least in home value price. price. Wise, yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> right. 
Uh, I mean, in a perfect world, I would go back to the ocean in a heartbeat. My bank account, on the other hand, that ain't in the works. <laughs> well, is your husband going to be a lifer? Is he going to do a full 20? Are you going to be getting dragged 16 around? Right is it 16 now? now? Yeah. And so, and he's about to go recruiting and that'll be three years. So he's going to ride that out pretty much to the end. Gotcha. And that's going to be there in Kansas? No idea. We no have idea a report. Wow. We have a report date. We have no idea where that is. Oh, that's fine. That's <laughs> yeah. awesome. Go army. Yeah, that's yeah. that's phenomenal planning. Jeez. Okay. Well, I mean, I always feel like uh, I, I I know last time when we did a weekly havoc together, I had to touch base just about Kansas in general, just because I'm amused that people spend <laughs> that much time in Kansas. But sometimes you don't have a choice, and I get that. Um. So. For everybody listening, I'll, I'll set a little bit of a level here about Lonnie and I, because we were supposed to do this, what, a month, six weeks ago, something like that. Yeah, something like that. Right. And um, and a whole bunch of stuff came up for me at, at that time, because there was a lot of stuff going on with that prep and uh, with a couple other things. But I felt like it was also in our advantage because trying to catch up with all the different lines of effort that you have going on is a lot. And I was like, I'm not really, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it justice today, but I certainly couldn't have done it as much justice a month or six weeks ago. I was like that you you've been churning out a lot of stuff this year. So I, I want to get to it, but I want to start, I guess, really with your origin story. Um, because I mean, you really have, you were an artist, like a very conscious, like dedicated artist at the beginning. And you've kind of come full circle to be a very dedicated, conscious artist now with a whole lot more, I would guess to say, and a whole lot more <laughs> deeper sense of purpose and mission. But, um, but that really was the core of your identity, wasn't it? Or from, from an early age? Yeah. I mean, I started taking, I went to my first college classes when I was like 16 or 17. I was just like high school stupid. Like I okay. just blew through my stuff and immediately started getting in on any program I could where they would let you experience college kind of. So I started real early and I had a. Wait, so you were smart. So you were like a prodigy, right? I mean, if you're doing 16, smart, 17. I was dedicated. Like I, I was okay. like, I, I really wanted out of school. I was a loner. I had, I could care less about homecoming and prawn, all that stuff. I just want to do the work and get out. And so I just cranked through electives and knocked everything out. And then started going to like charter schools and stuff like that to do it on my own time. And I went through like two years of high school in a couple months, just like credit wise. And so I ended up graduating a year early. And then I started taking college full time by the time I was like 17. And I was an art student and uh, thought, you know, like, I'm going to be I'm going to figure something out because I had an idea that like, I don't know what you do with art, like to make a living. <laughs> so. Uh, and my dad, my dad was a Vietnam vet. So he was just like, you're going nowhere with art. And so, and I didn't like graphic design and stuff like that. So I figured I was like, that's where the money I think is, is photography and stuff like that. Right. And I didn't, I liked old fashioned stuff, just drawing pencil, pen, charcoal, all that. And so I started getting in my head like, okay, I'm not going to make it as an artist. So what do I do? And so I ended up graduating with my AA and I just went to the army. And so I showed up as like this art kid that was just like, oh, I'll play a soldier for a little while. Okay. And, so uh, that, that that's an insane leap that I want to dive into more, but first I want to back up. Okay. So 
if you're, how much of the move for you to be diving into college early was you, how much of that was your dad or your parents? Um, was this, or, or, or were you just a go-getter where you're like, no, Hey, I know exactly what I want to do. And I, I, I'm, I'm done with the high school thing. I'm blessing through this to try to get through as fast as possible. And you were just that focused. Yeah. I mean, my dad wasn't a college graduate or anything, so he definitely was just kind of like, do what you do. Okay. Uh, my mom was very open. Just be like, uh, you're either going to work or you're going to go to school. You're going to do one or the, one or the other. Okay. So, so then, oh, sorry, sorry to cut you off, but here's my, here, here's what's interesting to me about that is that you're focused and you're seem like you're tunnel visioned on the next steps forward life-wise, but then in the thing that you're dedicated towards your art, you're like, eh, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do with this. That's a yeah. kind of weird dichotomy, no? I mean, I think uh, for someone like me, that's just overly anxious. And <laughs> it's kind of like, it makes sense in my mind. Uh, I overthink it. So I had a lot of things that I thought I was going to be growing up. I thought I had a pretty clear path and I burned myself out because I did burn through school. And I got to the point where I was just like, okay, I'm tired. And then I started kind of skipping class and going surfing and stuff like that. And just okay. like floating a little bit. And then I went back to school. And so I had the Van Wilder thing kind of going gotcha, like, gotcha. Uh, where it, like, I thought I knew what I wanted to be, but then it was just like, I let a lot of outside influence get in the way of that. And so I thought like, okay, this is, I'll, I'll never be anybody being this. It's not like I'm going to be the next Salvador Dali or something or Frida Kahlo going to school and just like, painting. And uh, so I thought like, ah, I just got to go do something that's going to make me worth something. And so I thought, eh, well, the quick route is military. I can, you know. And, and if I remember right from when we talked on Weekly Havoc, I mean, you were a tomboy anyway. So the army wasn't, wasn't totally out of your wasn't bandwidth. A yeah. Yeah. How was basic for you? Was it easy? I loved basic. I love okay. basic because I love that we were integrated too, so that uh, we could compete with the guys and stuff. Cause I was in a platoon of like, there was probably like 60 guys, 11 women. And so wow. it was, uh, it was fun. I mean, I definitely liked red phase. I liked learning how to shoot. I liked doing the, the team building stuff. The courses were my favorite for like the, uh, relay kind of stuff you would do. Uh, the later phases were kind of like, cause you have to be a little bit more professional. It was like, eh. but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, basic was one of probably the funnest times I had in the army because it was when people worked together the most. And that kind of just seemed to branch out and branch away the further into the army. I went, people didn't seem as about the team and each other as they were when you first arrive and you're enjoying that whole suck together. <laughs> like, so there, there's a, uh, um, I'm going to make a really out there comparison, but um, there was a uh, improv teacher I had years ago. I mean, literally God, 23, 23, 24 years ago, um, but he was from second city. His name was Martin DeMott and he used to do an improv exercise called Gauhati. And he said, uh, does anybody here in the class know where Gauhati is? And I was like, no, he's like, exactly. Nobody knows where Gauhati is. He's like, you and your, and your partner in the scene are in Gauhati. All you have is each other. Go do the scene. 
And it was a great principle because it made you realize all I've got is this person. Every, every bit of information in this scene that we're creating out of thin air is going to have to come from this person because there's absolutely nothing out here. And I don't know where I am. And I think that's basic. I think that's, that's basic, right? It's just, you're there. It's you and these people. Technology has been stripped away. Everything's Nobody been stripped away. Going on. Yeah. For guys, <laughs> their hair is gone. Like, I mean, your whole identity is gone. So it's like, all you have is everybody else around you. And I know for me, I'll, tell me if you had the same experience. For me, that first, whatever was night or something after graduation, when you're still in the barracks, everybody's getting their orders and find out where they're going and all that. And suddenly everybody had their phones again for the first time. And I mean, back then, these weren't smartphones when I was going through, but it was, you know, still phones, it was still technology. And people had like family was there and people had brought them DVD players or something. And suddenly technology was there. And it was like nobody was talking to each other again. Like that whole, I, I could even feel like that, just that tear away of like every, all that, those little sinews just fraying. Was that kind of how it was for you going through basic and then going into the big army? A little bit. Yeah. I mean, I've made it before smartphones, just like at the tail end, we were still flip phones. So we still had to kind of communicate to each other a little bit, but uh, I think we had bonded enough that that last night it was, it was harder to know that like, Oh, I'm going to not have you <laughs> tomorrow. Like come tomorrow. Like I have to, st- you start all over again, new batch of people, new place. You're back into the whole, what the hell is going on? Who's going to be my buddy. And so I think there's a lot more nerves that came out that last night where people were kind of just uh, pretty aware that that was the end and that next chapter was going to start. So, so I, I know, obviously we're going to get into that first duty station for you because that's sadly far too significant uh, in your personal story. But before that, let me just ask if you hadn't gone into the army, what would you have done? What was your uh, plan B? I didn't have one. And that's why I was really worried that if I didn't get into the military, it was like, I don't, I'll never make it. Like I, I just was a really quiet person. I was a go-getter, once I was in, but it was getting in, I couldn't ever get my foot in the door because I was too just all that outside influence. Like, Oh, I'm not good enough. Like that always had that voice in my head talking me out of stuff. So I was really capable of things, but I was just too scared to like ever make the jump for anything. So I think I would have just been working dead end jobs and probably living at home with my parents or something. Like, I don't think I had a whole lot like, else that I could have done. I definitely wouldn't be able to go to school. I would have run out of money. Like my AA was expensive enough. Uh, so yeah, uh, like I've yeah. thought about it plenty of times. And so that's why I think I don't regret the military is because I understand that it did catapult me in a direction where I actually had somewhere I could end up, but yeah, I don't even know where I would have been. Would you have kept doing art, even if obviously it wasn't in the school setting, but do you think you would have just even if you were sitting, you know, working at, I don't know, 7-Eleven or something like that, and you're coming home at the end of the day, and you're, would you have just been like, I got to doodle, I got to do something? Would, would you have needed that regardless, do you think? Yeah, that's been something that's always stuck with me, because I was doing that even, you know, sitting in Afghanistan, just doodling and stuff like that. That was always my go-to coping mechanism when uh, it gets too loud up in your head. Art was my release. And so I think regardless of what I would have been doing, and if I ended up on the street or something, I would have found a way to create art, something to just, because it's just a part of you. It's just, it's just what you do. It's what I've always done. And so, yeah, I think regardless of where I ended up, that would have been something that stuck. 
So when you were, I, I want to stay with the art for one second, when you were going to school for it, or even before you were going to school for it, like just intrinsically, just innately to you, what specifically were you drawn to? Was it, was it the drawing? Was it the medium? What was it that appealed to you about it? And what did you find yourself gravitating towards artistically? I was really into drawing. I kind of, school taught me to hate painting because <laughs> I, I hated painting fruit and stuff like that. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but drawing <laughs> for me was uh, very therapeutic. I really liked charcoal. That was my main medium because of how mm. dark it was because I've always, I've been a very dark person, I think, emotion-wise all my life. I, my mom says it's the finish in us, but uh, just how bold charcoal is because, and just uh, being able to make things just like that photographic quality, just with the shading and stuff. I was mm. always really drawn to what, you could do with a piece of charcoal. It just seems a lot more exciting than like a back box of crayons or something like that, where it's like, you have all this stuff to work with. Like I would have never thought before college, like you could do something with charcoal. Yeah. Even though it wasn't medium. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's fine. I mean, I didn't even think of this until you just said it. I remember in high school, I drew in one art class that I took, I drew the, uh, I mean, it's literally a replica of Danzig's, um, I got, what was the name of that Danzig album, but the one with like with the cow skull on it. And I drew that in charcoal and I think it's probably somewhere in my storage still, but charcoal was a really cool medium and I'm not a talented artist, but I just remember charcoal itself for me, what appealed to it was that it, I didn't need the specificity. It almost hid some of my deficiencies. Cause then you kind of get lost in the shadow and, and then you find something else that's really cool and it makes it not necessarily a, a realistic picture, but it makes it, um, I don't know, have some depth or resonance or something. I think it just has a lot of mystery around it. Yeah. Like it, there's, you can kind of, it's really easy to just look at the blackness of it and just be like, what's beyond that? Like what's in there? Cause you can hide little things and like subtract pretty easily with it to where you have these hidden images and stuff. And I like to doing that a lot in school, but I did have people in my class that would be like, your stuff frightens me. Like, really? <laughs> like your stuff. Cause you get like part of, college art is the critiques. You have to put your stuff out there. You have to critique each other. You have to learn to get a little brutal. And uh, I would put stuff up and people would be like, I'm scared. What were you drawing? A lot of skull stuff, like <laughs> just uh, <laughs> things where it was like skulls coming out of like people's chests and like melting and like, just, I don't know. I was really into Frida Kahlo. So my idea okay. of like portraits was, uh, just having like that regular person and then something just bizarre <laughs> going on around them to kind of cool. speak for like the inside. So it's like the calm outside, chaotic inside. So I was trying to bring some balance to some, I don't know, working through stuff <laughs> in my head. <laughs> that's awesome though. Well, that's all. I mean, it's awesome that you were able to articulate what it is that was appealing to you about it. You know, it wasn't just, you know, throwing stuff on the, on the canvas or on the paper. Um, did you do stuff besides charcoal or was it, did you generally just try to restrict yourself to charcoal only? Uh, well, I went further in school where they start forcing you to work with other stuff. And so like you okay. start bringing in pastels and acrylics and you have to learn to use like rubber cement and stuff, like bring in other mediums where it's just like uh, just layered 
textures and all that. Yeah. And so I started to realize that there was a lot more that you could put into stuff because rubber cement became a huge thing for me because I do a lot of stuff with snakes in it. So I'd use that for like scale so that like, you could actually feel the painting oh, cool. or feel the drawing. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I was introduced to some bizarre stuff. And I started working with like clay because you have to do that in order oh, cool. to they and you have to do graphic design like you have to because I was going for fine arts and you have to get your hands in everything for the most part before they'll let you move on to whatever like your designated or selected medium is. So I played around with a little bit of everything. What kind of feedback did you get on your work? Did was there some stuff that on better feedback? <laughs> oh, really? Did it? Yeah. Charcoal, I got really good. Like I had a, I was really fortunate to have the teacher that I did for my drawing one and two classes that introduced me to charcoal and pastels because uh, he understood that I struggled with things like drawing fruit and I didn't want to come to class if we had to draw fruit. So he was like, then you sit in the corner and draw whatever comes to mind. And so he was getting all kinds of weird stuff from me, but he understood that that's what I needed to be able to do. He didn't want to put me in a box, but, uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, how much of the of the stuff you were drawing was um, was from your imagination? Was it all? Uh, for me, I've never really had the ability to take what I can see in my head and put it directly on paper, but I can find images that are close to it. And then I kind of like juxtapose them. And so like, I'll find pieces mm. of things that I like and I'll build something off of like a collage of stuff. So uh, I wish I could draw what's like what I see inside my head, but it's, it's never that. <laughs> no, no, I mean, look, I mean, I, I think like everything, it's probably, you know, all learned it's probably all developed i would imagine over time did you um how often were you drawing then in these years was it a daily thing was it something you like had college wise it was daily okay. uh it was i did a lot during my teenage years it was just like cranking stuff out and then once I got into the army it was just like I was lucky if I could do something once a month because I was just either out in the field or uh, just tired or whatever. And so. So let's talk about that. Then. So did you, how conscious a decision was it when you joined to divorce yourself from art? Were you like, no, I'll still find the time. Or were you like, Hey, I am literally doing a 180, and you know, I'm, I, and then it just comes back to you at some point years later. Like, what was that? What was that process like mentally for you to shift? The army didn't let me divorce myself from art because they found out I had an art degree. And so it's like, you're going to go paint all the rocks in the crests. And here's a M113. We need some sabers on it. <laughs> <laughs> the army actually helped me hate art for a little while because <laughs> uh, I think that's where the it was easier to take a break because it was you know, it's their mandatory fun. Yeah. And so it was like, oh, I don't this is work. This isn't like, it's not, you know, my hobby anymore. I'm, it's part of my job. And so I kind of backed off. And then uh, I had mentioned how, uh, I think it was on our that episode for Havoc about doing tattoos for people in Afghanistan, like drawn up sketches, stuff like that. And so there was always, it was kind of there. So, uh, and if I have some pictures of it, of the top of my bunk in Afghanistan, because people would send playing cards and I would doodle on them and just stick them to the top. So I had this full, like, 
Oh, damn. Apple kind of thing going on (laughs) (laughs) with doodles and stuff like that. But so it was like, it was there. It just wasn't at the level that it was before I went in where I was doing like murals and stuff like that. I had to just kind of use scraps of stuff like napkins from an MRE. Like I had to use what I could get my hand on, but I don't think it ever really disappeared fully. It just had to change how it was being done. If you could go back, would you still let people know that you were artists or would no. you keep it to yourself? Just so yeah. So it stays it personal, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's yeah, like it commercializes it too soon. You're not ready for that. Yeah. I regretted saying that I knew how to do art the moment my chief dropped a giant boulder off in my office. It was like, will you paint, will you paint our uh, company <laughs> stuff on this? And it was just like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, um, so now that art was becoming work, I mean, what, well, let's talk about the army a little bit, I guess. Um, let's talk just about the soldiering first. And did you find that it was, did you really find that you were remade? Did the army remake you in any way, shape or form? No. And that's where I kind of had a problem with it. Cause I went in with this idea of old army ideas, like with my dad being Vietnam, I, grandparents were world war ii so i kind of had this expectation that's like you're gonna break me and you're gonna make me better because i didn't feel like mm. i was that great and then i got out i was like uh still me <laughs> like i don't feel that like i didn't feel yeah. like i got pushed enough i didn't feel like basic was hard enough and so i was kind of disappointed by the time i got to my first duty station because it was like i'm still kind of shy i'm quiet i'm still kind of the loner attitude and i was just like i'm still me like this is me at college like, I don't want to feel like this. I want it to be G.I. Jane. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you could go back, would you have done anything differently? Would you have chosen a different MOS or anything? Like, would there have been anything that the Army could have done to live <laughs> up to your expectations? Or I think was back it just your expectations I, had to change? I think back to the uh, the wish list they give you at basic where everybody goes like, you know, put what you don't want in this order, kind of like they're never going to give you your number one. So put what you don't want as number one. So you don't get it. So I was like, how oh, for Riley? And they gave it to me. <laughs> so it's like, oh, I guess nobody ever puts that one. <laughs> they were just waiting for someone like me. Uh, and actually uh, to make it worse was that I had orders to Germany first when I was in basic and then, uh, or an AIT when they give you your stuff and I was like, Oh yeah. And I went and got all the shots and did the whole thing, the briefings for the overseas stuff. And then I came back and they're like, whoops, <laughs> you're going to Kansas. She's like, Oh, <laughs> that, it's yeah. Like, it's what, what a buzzkill. Um, so at that point, well, I'm trying to stay away from all the emotional stuff you're going through. Cause I want to get to your writing, but maybe I just can't avoid it. Let's dive into um, the writing part first so your books correct me if i'm wrong but all your books came out this year didn't they yeah so it's taken you several years now that you've been out of the military to actually publish these books did you start writing while you were in did you start writing afterwards and these finally just came to a point that you could publish them or was it just you just even started writing two years ago, and now they one year later they all get published. What was uh, that journey my, like? For my 
first book, Bottled Away, the one that actually delves into the military completely, that one was started while I was still in the military because a lot of that writing is from journals I had on Af- when I was in Afghanistan and going through basic. My mom kept all my letters I mailed home, so I was able to go through them and wow. kind of uh, refresh myself on stuff. Because, I mean, your lack of sleep, I've erased half of what I went through, <laughs> probably yeah. more. And uh, so I had a lot of notes. And so what happened was uh, right before I launched Cruise Corner to start doing the blog and stuff like that, I was kind of compiling stuff. And I had teachers at my university that were like, oh, you're a great writer. You should keep doing stuff with it and kind of got motivated to bring all that stuff together to see what I could make of it and tried it out with the blog and the blog did pretty well. And so then the book just came became like the elongated form of it mm, kind of okay. filling in the blanks. Cause blogs, you know, it's like, okay, what's people's attention span. I got to right. make this like a two minute read. Right. And so I felt like I left out a lot. And so I spent pretty much 2019, 2020 filling in the blanks and trying to just make it what it became. And the same with like the gaslit heart where it talks about domestic violence. It was journals and poems I kept while I was going through it. And then eventually just filled in the story so people understood the context of what the poem or what describing my emotions during a certain day was. Have you been journaling pretty much your whole life? Yeah. Wow. And you have it. You have all those journals still. No. (laughs) Uh, I've kept a lot of the stuff that happened within like the last 10 years. A lot of stuff I wrote when I was younger, kind of like you read back over it and tough critic stuff like, oh, I, I was a horrible writer. And then right. I just throw it in a burn pit and just like, uh, and so it's just gone. And so there's a lot of stuff that, and I did the same thing with art. I was like, oh, I don't like this anymore. Like you just toss it out in a dumpster or whatever. Like I'm always just throwing stuff out. And so I'm kind of surprised with myself sometimes that I did make the book because I am horrible at holding on to stuff. Like I am mm. the opposite side of the pack rat. Like I can't hold on to anything to save my life. And so- Uh, I did have like the little shoulder uh, writing pads you carry in the military, like all those, like I had all that stuff still from basic. So I was able to write enough in those to remember later on going back, like, okay, I remember what that was in relation to or why I felt that way. But stuff like my mom keeping those letters was what really helped me put myself back in that spot. And then when I started podcasting, the conversations brought up stuff where I was like, oh yeah, I remember stuff like that. And then I started writing about that and filling in those blanks too. So you would not have probably written as much as you have recently, if not for Cruise Corner. Is that a fair statement? Okay. So maybe let's talk about that then. Let's talk about how Cruise Corner started and why why you called it Cruise Corner and what you intended to achieve with it. So really the whole reason why the website and blog came up was because of my capstone for school when I was getting my master's degree, because you had to do an article and you had to publish it somewhere for your class to see it. And I didn't want to go ask someone to publish my paper because it was about shredding the VA and how I felt about their healthcare. Uh. And so uh, I was kind of like, I don't really want to put this out on like the VA's vantage point or something like, right, right. Uh, or somewhere where it's going to not work the way it's intended. And so I had asked my teacher, can I create a website to put this on? And she's just like, sure. 
And so that's where I posted my capstone. But then I was like, that's literally all that's on my webpage. Like you go on there and it's just this one article. So I kind of put some padding in it. And I was like writing about some stuff that uh, was important to me, which was veteran suicide. And that's where the name of it came from. Cruise Corner was my buddy that committed suicide right before I got out. Uh, and he, that was the first uh, like, real friend I had that committed suicide. I'd already dealt with people committing suicide in the army, but that was like the first buddy of mine that did it. And I'd only talked to him like 24 hours prior and uh, said all the things I wish I could take back, like call me later (laughs) because uh, you're obviously too, uh, too much in a certain way where you're not getting what you're trying to say out. And I don't know how to help you because it's incoherent. And so I beat myself up over that for years because it was like, I failed. Like the one time I had to prove that I was a buddy, I failed. And so I felt like I owed it to him and other people to talk about what veteran suicide was like and why people hurt. And I had buddies that were contemplating doing it. And it was all because they felt like they couldn't talk about their service because they didn't have a combat MOS or something like, especially my male buddies where it was like, I didn't do the right thing to be able to talk about it. So nobody knows why I hurt and I want them to know why I hurt, but I'm not allowed to talk about it. And so I felt like, okay, well, I'll talk about it. I know why I hurt. I can put this into writing. Like I know how to like kind of put this in the context. And so uh, I kept using that blog that I had for school and I just kept putting stuff on it. And I started getting feedback from people like, thank you. Like, I've been trying to say this for 10, 20 years and I didn't know how wow. to say it. And then when I started getting people saying, I didn't kill myself today because I read your blog, then it was just like, I got to keep going. Like I got to keep, keep the momentum going, keep putting more out there, covering more ground. And so uh, really it was the people that were coming to me saying like, thanks for talking about this topic that pushed me to keep writing more and more and just realizing like, wow, we're missing out on a lot when it comes to veteran suicide, where it's like, I think it's a simple thing of like, let people talk and we don't do that. And so the cruise corner really became a place of like, I'm going to create a platform where you can come talk to me. So that's when the podcast came out. It was just like, if you want to tell your story anonymously or as an organization or whatever, like here it is like, cause this is how I pay back. This is how I'm going to help where I failed my buddy cruise. This is where, you know, I can make up for those times where I felt like I didn't say the right thing or I cut somebody off that was trying to open up about something. It was just like, this is where I fix that. So it's interesting. I I've talked with, I think so many people about this. I can't remember who, um, because probably too many names to remember, but I know there's, we've talked a lot about, um, who the proportion, the demographics of who's committing suicide in the veteran community. And that I think it's a two to one ratio for non-combat veterans committing suicide. What's your take on that? I just think people don't realize how much can happen to you during your service or just in life. I mean, you're still, even though you're a service member, life is still happening also. So there's other things it's high stress there's a lot of pressure. Uh, I think that the people that don't have those combat MOSs or just that combat time feel like they can't do anything. They can't ask for help. And so they push it off longer. And 
you know, it's more of the uh, just those invisible wounds of people thinking like, I'm not allowed to feel bad because I didn't see someone die or get blown up or I didn't get shot at. And so then there's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of other stuff that gets put on it. And so I think that people that feel like they don't hold the right titles and stuff to have a hard time actually have a harder time because of that thought. And I think you just put more pressure on yourself to hide it and to pretend. And that, that gets tiring. That's heavy. Do you ever um, compare yourself to other veterans? Do you ever look at people's resumes or what they've done and go, Oh, I should have done that. I could have done that. I wish I'd done that. Or is there any part of you that's like that? Or well, are you content with what you did? Yeah. I do it all yeah. the time because of social media, because we're so in each other's faces for yeah. what we did. And so I, even what I do with the podcast or like anything in life, like, cause you see what everybody else is doing nowadays where it's just like, Oh, I'm behind. I'm not doing good <laughs> enough. Oh my God. I don't have enough followers. I, okay. Yeah. I didn't get enough downloads on that. Like everything right. is just like, we've created this really jacked up system to where it's like, uh, we're kind of moving away from the goal of like, let's get these stories out there. Let's get people help to, well, is your message important enough because you have a big enough following or, yeah. are you, you know, are you a big enough name yet to even have an opinion? <laughs> so what would you think? Uh, I mean, this is a total hypothetical, but what if you became so big and so, uh, so much of a, let's call you a veteran influencer that, um, would that, would that feel comfortable to you? Or no. would you be like, well, why talk about that? Why would that feel comfortable? Well, one thing too, the, the label of veteran influencer I've seen get trashed so hard on social media because it's just this yeah. idea of like, that is all you're about is being an influencer and, you know, making money or promotions or getting your name out there. And you don't actually care about anything going on. It's all about you. And so for me, it's just like that idea of like, I don't want people to ever look at me as being somebody that's just trying to like be the next big author or the next big artist or something like that to see the fame in it or the clout or whatever. It's just, I want to always be seen as a veteran that gives a damn and someone that's approachable and that I'll be there to do the best that I can and to keep talking about stuff that I feel like doesn't get talked about enough. But I feel like there's this level of once you get past like this point where I don't know if it's the number of followers you have or what. I don't know if Instagram is really a place to say that you're famous. Or anything, uh, but, right. Right. But uh, I feel like once you pass a point, people stop actually caring about what you have to say. And when you kind of stay, you know, a little bit. Mm. In the background, like people still take what your message is intended to be. There's not all this other stuff around it of like, is she, is that for real or whatever? You know, it's like, is she faking it for attention? Is this, you know, she talk about this because she's pushing her book or whatever. It's like, I just want you to focus on the message of like, hey, can you call a buddy today? You know, there's a reason not kill yourself. You know, like, let's not look into it too far. Let's just see what I'm trying to say and not make it into like, whatever we're doing with social media. So let, let me ask you that. Do you think that there's a tension between you pushing ahead? Well, let me, let me preface this why, why I'm going down this path. Um, on Instagram today and maybe yesterday, I can't remember, you posted a couple of posts of your artwork, which mm-hmm. fucking blew me away. Like it was really impressive stuff. Like, I mean, I'm, you know, as big a fan as anybody of like, you know, abstract things that are kind of, 
you know, nebulous and simple and minimalistic and all that. Yours were like these lush, fully developed paintings that like really caught the eye. And on Instagram for something to catch the eye obviously says a lot, but, um, but you know, there's a lot to look at there. It was really interesting work. Um, so with that as context, do you feel at all attention between you personally pushing ahead with your work, your art, and kind of the social obligation of being a veteran, let's say, for lack of a better phrase, but just that sense of, hey, I'm trying to give people a platform to talk. But you know, what if you if your art takes off and suddenly you have a bigger platform? Is there a tension because now you for your individual talents? Are sticking your head up above the crowd a little bit more? Does that make you uncomfortable in any way or or not so much? I mean, there's for me, all of social media and all that stuff's uncomfortable. Like, like yeah. the, whole, the whole thing. I do feel like attention does grow from the fact that people, some, some still see me as simply a blogger. They don't really do anything with the podcast. They still see me as what I was in the beginning. And when I started moving to the podcast stuff, then just like doing other things, it was just like, why are you doing that? Like mm. you're a writer. And it's like, mm. well, no, I'm just telling a story and I have to use other platforms and other means to do it so I can reach more people. And so for me, I can only talk about stuff for so long. Like I can only write about so much, talk about so much on podcasts. The podcast has kind of fallen to the side because it's like, how, how many more times do I have to say it? Like it's here for you right. to listen to. And so for me, like bringing the art back around, it was just like, I got to keep that momentum of doing other things to reach other people and other places because the people that wanted to listen to the podcast that didn't follow the blog or the people that really connect through art, they're not going to listen to the podcast necessarily. So it's like, I'm missing people. So I feel like I do what I can over here for the writing. And then I do what I can over here for the people that listen to podcasts and then people over here that are on the creative end of things. So I feel like I keep moving and trying to tell the same story in a different way so I can just keep reaching other people. And so there is the tension of the people mm. that feel like they've been left behind. Cause it's like, well, you're not writing anymore. I don't want to look at your art. <laughs> like, Interesting. Yeah. Do you think it is the same story across all those mediums, or do you feel like those those are those either are or soon will be different parts of yourself that you're kind of bringing to the forefront? I think it's all parts the same story that kind of just takes on a different perspective of it. I think the writing is more of like the the hard copy of what the story is, and then you get into the art where it's more of the emotional aspect. So you show the other like side of it, but it's all part of the same story. So it all comes together. So like when I did like the poetry books, I put the art in there because I felt like it fed off of each other. So one's kind of the description and one is to just show the raw emotion that can't always be put into words. So I feel like they all kind of create, it's like a puzzle. It all just comes together. Yeah. I mean, obviously with the art, I mean, somebody theoretically could look at it without knowing anything else about you, what you want to say or anything like that, and just appreciate it for what it is, which you can't really do with a podcast or, or writing, um, which I think makes it um, interesting because you um, you have that avenue that's almost like, you know, pure undiluted, like nobody can, you know, like people can put whatever stuff they want on it and you're just putting your, it's a completely pure artistic enterprise where people will read into it what they want. And the fact that you layer a message onto it, people can listen to it or not, but they can still appreciate the art. I mean, I, I mean, a lot of my stuff, like I try to make complex 
things where people have to sit there and wonder what the hell is going on in it because I want uh I was a huge Salvador Dali fan growing up so for me it was like I wanted people to always come back and look at it and find something else or to be able to put their own emotions into it I wanted people to feel my artwork I didn't want them to just see what was going on I wanted it to bring about something else or another thought or whatever and yeah so, yeah okay so let's let's without further ado let's dive into um, some of your writing, because I want to get your story out a bit and especially see how this intersects with your art. Um, so Bottled Away uh, was, um, I think you you described it on Havoc as like, this would be a good gateway drug for people to get into your writing, right? It's the most yeah. accessible of your books. Yeah. You said, right. Why is that? Talk about why you feel that is. I feel like first and foremost, I'm always seen as a veteran. And so I feel like that's what kind of follows me is the military, other veterans. And so that's the one that's probably the easiest for them to understand why I wrote it, because it covers all aspects of military life. And so then when you get into the other books, it's kind of like for some people, it's like, ooh, poetry. Really? That's gross. Like, <laughs> like I don't know. And then like the other one, Gaslit Heart, domestic violence, it's a very specific audience, but I tried to tie it back into my service so that people from the service would read about it. And because I did feel like my service played a huge role in right. it. And so I think it's bottled away is the most relatable to the group of people that I try to push my stuff out to. So um, why don't you tell this instead of me trying to recap it, but you want to talk a little bit about, and I mean, obviously for everybody out there, buy the book. We're not going to have Lonnie give out spoilers and all that, <laughs> but I mean, uh, because it occurs right away in your military service as much as it occurs right away in the book. Um, why don't you just briefly bring people up to speed on what happened when you first arrived at Fort Riley and that whole situation. So, so when I first got to Fort Riley, you go through the whole in-processing. So you're, you're with a unit, but not really. And so I was staying in some transitional barracks. And so I was away from my company and it was an all male barracks. And I ended up before being able to be transitioned over to where my unit was, ended up dealing with a sexual assault and uh, being new. Cause I was only like a month in, I didn't know how to report. I didn't know who to talk to. I barely knew my chain of command. I had no idea really how squads and platoons and all that worked in in real army and so really early on i learned that not everyone in a uniform is you know a great person we're not they're not all heroes and this whole idea of like basic training teamwork and buddy systems and like i had this great time and it's that kind of dysfunctional family and then you bring that over and you've learned all these oaths and creeds and you come to your unit and something like that happens. And it's like, well, that's not, that is the opposite of everything I thought this was going to be. And so really early on, someone tarnished my idea of what the military was going to be. I thought it was going to make me a better person. I thought I was going to be tougher. I thought I was going to get this family out of nowhere and all these friends. And, uh, I just Sounds learned like a seven that, up commercial. Yeah. 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 It's like this party <laughs> just, life. It's great life. Yeah. I just thought it was going to be like what my college years weren't. <laughs> and yeah. So, and yeah. then it was just like, like, Oh, okay. Like, I guess this is still the college years, but it's the crappy ones. Like this happens everywhere. But, uh, 
And what really surprised me was that, because I, I know I'm a tough person. So like I pushed through it, but it was the idea of how other people responded. And so that's where I had that falling out with like other women soldiers. And I realized that I was very much alone in the military and it took a long time to really open myself up to other people because I had this idea of like feeling almost like a damaged soldier. But at the same time, it was like, I, who do you trust? Right. Like, this is. And so it was. And, and, it's, and, I, mean, and I use the word funny advisedly because it's I'm being a little sarcastic. But I mean, it did. It is funny that it did leap into the gaslit heart and everything you go through there, like without the sexual assault at Fort Riley, you probably don't even have the gaslit heart as a book that all probably doesn't even have. I don't, I don't think that would have, Yeah. because it, what it does, it brings you down as a person, you become almost an object and you, if you don't see yourself in a good light, you're going to let whatever happen to you. Cause I just didn't care anymore. And so I felt like when I left the military, I still felt uh, pretty broken because I had never dealt with it. I never opened sure. up. Nobody knew my best friends in the military had no idea that someone that was standing on our, you know, parade field or something had done something to me. They just thought whatever, you know, or believed the rumors that I was sleeping with everybody or whatever that, you know, the story that was getting passed around was. And so uh, when I got out, it was just kind of like, I'm a failure. I couldn't stick with the military. I couldn't ever get over it. And so it's just like, whoever will accept me, well, you know, that's that. And yeah. I just let whoever in and that person just, you know, took what was left. Did you ever consider, so in the book, uh, the only, uh, it's not a spoiler, it's, I guess, an anti-spoiler because it talks about something that's not in the book, but did you ever consider writing more, I was say graphically, but just talking about the assault itself? Did you consider actually writing that or no? So the original draft for Bottled Away had the full on step by step, like everything that happened. It was a very yeah. graphic thing. And during the editing process, I couldn't get through it because it was just I was sick every time I tried to get through that first chapter or second, whatever it is. And uh, and I started thinking and I had heard someone say they're like, you shouldn't have to tell your story for anyone to believe it. And I started thinking, I don't want people to think that you have to give this type of detail for someone to believe it happened. And so one, I took it out because it was like, this is too much for me to even get through. And two, it was the idea of it shouldn't have to be this graphic for the point to be made. And I didn't want anyone that had dealt with it. Cause I know a lot of men and women do in the military to have to go through that, to relive their own. Cause they already know enough of how horrible it is. And I think people can kind of piece stuff together on their own. And so I made the decision to remove the details of what had happened. Um, psychologically, I guess, um, do you still feel comfortable with that decision? Does it, do you feel like, I, cause I, I, I imagine there would be a fine line between feeling like you've revealed too much and feeling like you still have to get something off your chest. Do you feel like you've struck that balance or do you feel like you tilted too far in one way or another? I mean, there's definitely times where I feel like just bottled away and gaslit heart together. Like I've exposed too much, like just yeah. as what it is. And it's, you know, when I published those, everybody was like, oh, you got to be so excited. And it's like, I feel like throwing <laughs> up. Right. <laughs> like right. I, you have no idea. Like this wasn't like, you know, the next Harry Potter franchise <laughs> that came out. You know, this is my yeah. life. And yeah. like my family didn't know that that stuff had happened. 
that's how like I opened up the conversation with my own mother was her reading my book and being like, oh my God, I didn't know. Like you never said anything. And so for me, for me, it felt like an overexposure to my life, but it was like, I felt like I had to get it off my chest. I had to say something because yeah. I had held it all, held onto it for so long. And it was just like the people that I felt like needed to read it. Like maybe the people that worked with me and kind of saw me in a certain way, like how I acted afterwards or uh, believed the rumors or whatever it was. They were the ones I, I wished could read it to understand why I was the soldier that I was. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them, like their minds made up of how I was as a soldier or whatever, whatever my reason for being the way I was. And so it was kind of like, you know, I'm probably not going to get what I actually want out of this, but I know it did help other people feel like they were allowed to tell their story and allowed to go to like a therapist and say, I think I have PTSD from sexual assault or something or domestic violence. Cause people just had this idea that you couldn't have PTSD if it wasn't combat related. So it did what it needed to do in some aspects, but I do feel like for my own personal self, it's more than I wish I ever had to, I don't want to be the girl that got you know, well-known over a book, over horrible things that happened. I wish I could write a book about some brighter days, you know, but, uh, or had some fiction (laughs) come out that would have done that. If if only some, some crazy uh, Taliban guy had tried to attack your position and you'd stitched him and saved like a platoon. You'd be writing a book about that instead, instead of this crap. Yeah. Yeah. I I know. Had a book like Mattis, you know, (laughs) that would have been (laughs) So, yeah, talk about that. I mean, what do you, I mean, obviously you have mined some pretty severe trauma. You have mined, mined it for three books, a book of poetry, the gaslit heart and bottled away. Do you have more stories to tell, or do you want to keep writing in general? And you'll look for any story, real fiction, whatever, um, as long as you can keep writing. How do you regard writing right now? Uh, well, while my husband's deployed, I don't get to write really that much because I have a five-year-old that screams in my face. So it's a little hard to, you know, figure out anything. <laughs> uh, Ease Pain, the uh, poetry book that came out, that was the most recent release. That's book one of a series that I'm going to try to make three books. And so there is a second one that is in the works, getting pieced together. It's just a pile of notes kind of right now, but it's there. Yeah. Uh, so I'm hoping to get that out sometime next year. Okay. And then the third one is <laughs> barely a stack of notes. It has a long way to go, but uh, there are other things in the works because uh, I've been writing poetry about as long as I've been painting. And so I, I've had stuff from all walks of life. And so the first one he's paying is the domestic violence poems and stuff that I wrote while I was going through that. And so the next one's going to be military related. So it's going to kind of feed back into bottled away. So they're all going to kind of get paired with the poetic side of it, because that's how I'm trying to do the whole rounded story. This could sound kind of obvious, but I mean, what motivates you to write at the end of the day? Is it really to unburden yourself to say this, to unpack the experiences you've had and kind of have a safety outlet for that, some of the trauma and all that, or is it, I mean, you've been writing poetry your whole life. Is it just, Hey, I'm going to write anything. And if it happens to be my life, because that's what's in my front lobe right now, so be it. But 
when that all gets sorted out, I'm going to still have that engine. That engine's still going to be revving, and there's going to and whatever is in front of me, I'm going to be writing about that. I think for me, it's just it's kind of hard to explain. Like when you're like you have creativity or whatever because of like where it comes from. I feel like it's just something I've always had, and I've been lucky to be able to do things to express myself, like painting and drawing and writing. I wouldn't say my poetry is the greatest. It's just something that it's one of those things that comes to mind. I've always been one of those people where I could just be driving down the road and have like a receipt next to me and just something goes through my head and I just write it down. And so it's always just been this thing. And I don't know if it's because I'm not a super social person. I don't talk to people very often. So I think I have a lot inside all the time, regardless if I'd ever gone to the military or dealt with domestic violence. It's just, that's just who I am. And so I just think it's one of those things that's just, it's always leaking out. Like you just always have to get all these things and you just got to put it into something. And so I'm just fortunate enough to have different things that I can put it into to express whatever the hell is happening up in my head. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad to hear that because that's great. I mean, that sounds like you will probably be writing for life, which is probably not the worst thing um, for anybody sharing it necessarily, but (laughs) okay. Fair (laughs) enough. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's true. I mean, so, so I guess let's talk about a little bit about the craft. How much do you, how much do you consider yourself to be a student of writing or literature? Did you, um, and I guess let's start with the poetry since you've been doing that the longest. Was that, um, I mean, I'm sure it, started as kind of just a general emotional response, but did you start to study it at all? Did you get into the form, anything like that? No. <laughs> you feel shame that I, I'm asking you this now? Do you feel put on the spot? I have not educated <laughs> myself in this in any way. <laughs> uh, I think it's just one of those things where it's just, uh, just your main putting lining. your feelings yeah. into a rhyme. I mean, it's really basic how I do it. And it's really just short form writing to me. It's just quick stuff. I consider my poetry very Dr. Seuss-esque. <laughs> like I like my rhymes. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I just feel like that's how, like, I just, you just write it. And I know some people will read it and it's just like, what? But it's like in my head, like I yeah. know how, like, you know, how it flows and stuff like that. So for me, really, it was just kind of like songwriting without mm-hmm. having mm-hmm. any beat or anything to put it to. And so it's really just an expression of emotion in very short form for me. What's, what's the flash to bang for you with writing to, let's not say publishing, but writing to feeling comfortable that you've done the poem and that the poem is done? Uh, how How long is that process? Do you end up going back through it? Do you let it sit for a while and go, Ah, uh, you know, let me give this a little bit of time. What's that process like? For me, it's just kind of uh, because I am that random writer where I'll piece stuff together just throughout the day or through a task. And then I'll kind of just stack it and let it sit. I'll come back sometimes a day, a week, a month later, mm. and then read through it. Some poems I've come back years later and gone through and then just kind of cleaned it up and kind of restructured it. And so it's just, depends on what the poem is and how deep I was trying to go with whatever I was trying to explain, because some of them do take years because they take that time to just kind of sift through 
And others, it's just kind of like something real quick that pops in. It's just like, all right, this is going to be three lines, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, this is enough. Like some are, they have very clear endings. It's like, this is, this is perfect. doesn't happen often, but it does happen sometimes. Uh, most of the time it's like, I don't really know where to end this. And you just kind of find the, <laughs> at some <laughs> point it's like, well, this is eight pages. So that's probably too much. <laughs> what uh, do you read poetry? Yes. Who do you like? A lot. What kind of stuff do you read? Actually, the person that got me into actually reading poetry was, uh, oh my God, I just blanked on his name. He runs Green Zone Hero. He's going to be so pissed. I can't remember his name. But uh, he wrote Fractals. And I actually was able to uh, be a part of that process of reading his book before he published it and to be part of the reviewing group. And he was talking about childhood sexual assault and I was reading his stuff and it wasn't all related to that, but it was, he used poetry to get through it. And uh, that really struck a core of me because of what he went through to get to that point of what he was going to write to kind of deal with his trauma and so I realized like, okay, I don't have to actually talk about what happened, but mm -hmm. I can use what happened as kind of like that gasoline to get it going. Yeah. And so and that was a big thing to me. And he was a veteran. And so it was somebody I feel like I could relate to. And I've read like Justin Egg and stuff. I think that's how you say his last yeah. name. Yeah. Apologize. Uh, and so I started seeing other veterans doing it. And so I had seen poetry throughout my whole life, but seeing other veterans do it, it was like, oh, I'm allowed. I'm allowed to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I'm not going to be looked at like a certain way or this isn't going to be that too girly thing. And so I realized like, OK, we were allowed I'm like sweet. Yeah. I'm going to share my stuff. What's gotten the best reception of your written work is the poetry done better than the prose or, or which book has done better? Like what seems to have hit the nerve the most, would you say? I would say bottled away. He still stands okay. as the, uh, the one that takes out the poetry again, because the first book was such a specific topic. I did not expect a lot of people to want to even care. Like, it's just kind of like, Oh, domestic violence. Like I ain't going to read about that. Like, right. Right. And, uh, so I think bottled away because I tried to write it. I always say I tried to write it where it wasn't the female perspective completely. Like I tried to write it to where it was all inclusive. I was trying to get it for everybody. Uh, it's been brought to my attention that it will always be the female perspective being for me. Right, right. <laughs> so, you kind of can't get away but, uh, from that. Yeah. yeah but uh, right. I, I tried really hard to take what I knew from my buddies since most of them were guys. Uh, but I still think that because of the way it was layered, we talk about deployment and transition and mental health, VA, all these things. I think it, there's something for everybody somewhere in there. Uh, so even if you can't relate entirely, uh, and I always get really bummed. I've had a lot of people hit me up about Bottled Away to say like, oh, I could totally relate to your book. And it makes mm. me feel like shit because really? of what is in it. Because it's like, it's one of those things where you don't want people to understand it in that way. It's like, I want you to understand why people hurt. I don't want you to understand because this is your story. And so I always felt really bad when people reached out and they're like, oh man, your first chapter explains my, my military career. 
And she's like, oh, wow. like, wow. It's like, what do I say? Like, thanks. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Glad right. brought you to tears, you know, <laughs> like. <laughs> well, you got an emotional response. That's good. That, that's, um, yeah. you know, I don't know if it's writing. what I was going for, but I mean, right. <laughs> God, um, I, I want to ask you kind of a weird question. What would have happened if you had actually stayed in active duty? And I asked that, and l- let me maybe preface this a little bit just for those that haven't read the book yet. <clears throat> because you um obviously your your experience is one and and you talked about this when we talked about cruise corner, but your experience is one that you really don't find a lot of coverage on. People have not been writing books about this, which is what makes it so interesting and does make it stand apart. And there's and what's interesting also is that there's no lack of trauma for your lack of cool guy swagger. Like, okay, you don't have badges and tabs all over the place, yet somehow you still end up with all this amazingly worthwhile experience that's been horrific, that's been a lot to live through, that's forced you to have to dig deep and have to, you know, the the, the tension, the human problems have still been there, but the the glory, if you will, of a noble fight and of the, you know, um, you know, kind of Hollywood movie uh, variety. That you know, you're just kind of deprived that that honor in a lot of ways, which I find is is interesting and and unwarranted. And I think you do a lot of people a lot of service. I think it's probably why you've gotten traction, is because you do a lot of people. Um, I, I think you provide a real service to people to understand that their service had merit, and that um, as you said, life doesn't stop. But even beyond that, any any civilian life issues that are happening when compounded with being in the military is going to be more extreme. It's the, the, the stakes are going to be higher. Um, yeah. The complications are going to be greater. And I think you give a real voice to that. So what I ended up wondering is seeing how the end of your military service kind of led into the gaslit heart, which I want to get to in a second, but I'm holding off on that for right now. Um, but when you look at the trauma that you end up going through as you transition into civilian life, would it have been better had you stayed in the military and with PCS moves or whatever else started to see a different part of the military or kind of gone further down the rabbit hole and, um, you know, past kind of some of the really, in, in the way you describe it, in my opinion, some really bad toxic leadership, some piss poor decision-making at higher levels and all that, and just push through so you could see a different side of the military. Do you think, have you ever considered that, what that would have looked like? Yeah, that was something that played with my mind a lot when I first got out was, would it have been better to just kind of suck it up, go through a PCS, see where I would have landed and seen if it could have been better. But then there was also the idea of it can always be worse. And so that was why I, I went over to the reserves because I thought, well, I'll keep a foot in the door this way. So I'll kind of do army, but I can kind of go back to my civilian life too. And I hated the reserves. Well, and it sounds, I mean, from, from reading their books, I mean, it sounds like you went to the most, I mean, I know you, you, it was a you, you, you did right to say like, <laughs> Hey, I'm sure there were some good NCOs there and some good people that were looking out, but that sounded like a, like a fucking clown show. Um, and it, like, it and like a stereotype cosplay. of a lot of bad reserve units um, there. Uh, yeah. t- tell, tell people about that story because that, that had my jaw dropping. Talk about the active shooter drill. Can you just tell oh that story God. really quickly? 
I don't even. Uh, so apparently we were having an active shooter drill that, you know, obviously nobody cues you into. But uh, yeah, we were just doing like the death by PowerPoint stuff. It was annual training time. So you're just like all day or all weekend, I guess, when you're doing drill, just PowerPoint, 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 going through all everything. And uh, out of nowhere, the one of the girls from that was actually in my squad just starts yelling. And my first sergeant approaches her and she's like, what's going on? And she pulls out a gun and she's and everybody's like, what the fuck? And, uh, and so everybody just obviously they had never had an active shooter drill before. Or if they had, they failed miserably because everybody just just ran. And I was like seven months pregnant. So I'm just like. I'm already irritable. So she's like, now you want me to run? And this girl's waving a gun around. <laughs> like, so I'm mad. But uh, yeah, like she just, it was apparently something we needed to cover. And that was in their mind, the best way to do it. Uh, that and the- can't have been an approved. I, the thing is, I cannot believe anybody would sign off on that as being an exercise of like a tick the box. Somebody did. But the thing that made, and I didn't mention this in the book because it didn't have anything to do with it, but one of my soldiers actually approached me because we all had to go hide in the motor pool because they could drop the bay doors and lock us in. And we're sitting in there and my soldier comes up to me and, uh, and he goes, like, is this real? And I was just like, I, I honestly don't know. Cause it's, it's not like I'm at a status where anyone's going to tell me if it's real or not. Like I'm too low on the totem pole to just assume it is. He's like, cause I slept with that girl last night and I had a gun in my car and I hope she didn't take. <laughs> That's hilarious. And I was like, Oh man, don't tell anybody else this story. Okay. <laughs> um, so Yeah. Like, so that whole thing was a shit show. Oh no, that's hilarious. And, and uh, for the record, um, I should mention that was a Florida reserve unit just because uh, uh, that seems sadly <laughs> yeah. appropriate. Oh my Lord. That yeah. is, that is um, yeah, that, that does not refute any of the negative stereotypes about reserve duty there. <laughs> um, that is ridiculous. So um, I, I wanted to, I, I, I want to dive into to gaslit heart. Um, and I know you said it, it, the book isn't for everybody. Nobody wants to read about domestic violence. Um, you're right. It is a it is a brutally tough book, and I found myself struggling with it, probably like most parents, um, especially about the parts with your daughter and with um, you, you, you when your husband comes back and has been driving around drunk with your daughter, and and she's in the um, you know, on the floorboards and you pick her up and all that. I, that's just incredibly brutal stuff. And I found myself having a hard time getting through that. Um, what's the reaction been from people that have read the book? What kind of feedback have you got? Uh, it's gone both ways. Some people tell me it's a heartbreaking story, but they're glad it had a good ending. Some people say that's not domestic violence. He wasn't beating you that like, you should have just left if that's all that you were going through. Right. Right. And, uh, and so it, it's, and that's, those are the people that are the reason why I wrote it is because people keep saying what domestic violence is. And it's so much more than the bruising and the broken bones and stuff. And so that's why I told it the way that I did. Cause I want people to understand how brutal it can get even when you're not being touched and the mind games can be so much harder to deal with because 
uh, I was already programmed to kind of do what I was told. That was what the military kind of taught me how to be compliant. And so I continued to be compliant. I moved from a crappy organization to a crappy person. So it was like, you know, just tell, tell me where to be, what to do, how to dress all this. I already know how to do all this stuff. And it was weird because the military also gave you the tools to survive, but they also gave you the tools to submit. It was like it the military you, is really what put me in that position. I right. feel like to a degree, but it also right. the training is what got me out of it. Yeah. Um, for you, looking at it now, looking at that book now, and it's only been out for what six months or so, roughly. Yeah. Okay. Um, have you gone back and read it, or when was the yeah. last time you read it? Uh, I actually did a podcast for it because people said it was too hard to read. And so I do kind of an audible version to where I read it for anyone that can't afford it to any, anyone that can't read it themselves. I uh, just did a bunch of episodes of me just reading the book and wow, I underestimated how shitty <laughs> that was going to be trying to read out loud. Really? That stuff and kind In of what like, way? Uh, to keep my composure, to yeah. not put the emotion into it. Cause it's just like, I'm supposed to just be. You know, I don't have the Morgan Freeman, like, <laughs> steady tone going. But it was just, like, trying to keep myself composed to go through uh, some of those chapters. There's a few in particular that are incredibly difficult for me to get through. But for the most part, I've gone through it so much because of the editing process and putting it together that it's uh, almost not my story anymore. I can detach okay. a little bit. Yeah. And so it's uh, it's just it's work. It's just a book to me. Uh, until I start actually like sitting down and like talking with like my husband's Reddit, my husband barely got through it. Uh, he, you know, talking to me about that. And then I start remembering like, oh yeah, that is my, that's my style, all my stuff. And then stuff comes back and it's like, oh yeah. But is there any part you, um, if you could go back and edit again, is there anything you would change in it? No, I'm, it was changed so many times that I think it finally ended up being what I needed it to be. There's times where I like, I remember like, Oh yeah, this happened. I should have probably mentioned that, but it's like, if I had mentioned everything that happened, that book would have never ended. Like I had to pick out enough. And there were times when I first released it where I actually thought I was like, maybe it's not brutal enough. Like maybe this isn't enough to get people to understand that this was actually a really difficult situation. Maybe I didn't suffer enough to make a point. Kind of like you didn't deploy enough to make your service make a point, right? Or you didn't have the yeah. right MOS to make a point, right? It's like never, this wasn't traumatic never enough. enough. Nothing's ever yeah. enough, right? I know, and and I think and I I say that because it seems to be a recurring theme with almost everybody I talk to on here, but especially in in this case with you. Um, because you're already focused on, on this very subject where I think there's something with veterans where we all have a sense of insignificance and humility in a, in a positive light, but also a, a sense that um, none of us wants to be the avatar for the veteran community. None of us feels worthy enough to, and, 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 is, and none of us should be the avatar for the veteran community, but we certainly can be an avatar for ourselves. And that has to have its own worth. Um, and and I, I think it's interesting. I was talking about this with um, Charlie Faint, who you've met briefly at, at Havoc Journal um, the other day. And I want to bounce this off you and see what you think about this. I, I think the, even the, 
not the term veteran, but the emphasis placed on veterans can be damaging. I want to be careful about how I say this. It can be damaging because it puts the emphasis on something in our rearview mirror. Being a veteran is something in all of our past. And it's an important part. And it's a part that I have, uh, as far as I know, I've never met somebody that would have changed it, but it's in the, it's in the rear view mirror. And the more that we adhere to it and make that a daily part of our identity, the more we are wetting ourselves, anchoring ourselves to something in our past that makes it difficult sometimes to move forward with, because we got to drag that with us. And it's, well, was I a good enough veteran when I was in, was I a good enough military member when I was in to trade on the veteran nomenclature now and to use that in any sort of description now. And, and I think there's a little bit of humility in that and that's good, but I also think sometimes it can be uh, an inhibitor because we're constantly going to measure up to, well, okay, I wasn't Delta. So I mean, I don't know, can I talk about this? You know, and then Delta guys write books and are like, well, I wasn't that guy though. That guy was really a stud, you know, and everybody's got this sense of insecurity about it. Um, what do you think? How does that strike you? Well, I mean, I think from what I've seen on social media, there's a group of service members that definitely feel or veterans that feel that they are all that. <laughs> like, like my service is everything. And if yours doesn't compare to mine or to my buddies, like yours isn't shit. And I think that's where a lot of uh, the issues are coming from is that people feeling like, okay, like someone's mapping out who's allowed to say what and who's allowed to talk so much about this. And uh, we've almost created like a competition out of it to where it's like trying to prove our stories are valid when it's just like we all had a different experience and it all amounts to something. And so it's like, can we just let each other talk? Because that's the whole idea, right? With ending veteran suicide, you got to talk, you got to, you know, do what yeah. you got to do, got to get it out. But then we we kind of impede each other from doing that. And we get in each other's way of being able to talk because we do create this idea of who is worthy and unworthy and who's done enough and who's seen enough and who's experienced enough. And, and I feel like social media has really blown up this idea of if you weren't getting shot at, shut up and, you know, leave the storytelling to the grunts, you know, the real heroes of it. And that's why I started telling the stories that I did, because it's just like this idea that you, you can't suffer if you didn't do something, you didn't go out the wire, well then shut up. Like there's no reason for you to be sad. <laughs> like right. what could possibly have happened to you to be sad? Well, and it's and, like, and there's a big difference between not going outside the wire and trying to talk as though you've gone outside the wire. I mean, let's be clear. I mean, if you're trying to, you know, say, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's, that's what we were all doing. And it wasn't your experience. Okay. That's one thing that's just lying and, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. And that's disrespecting your own service as well. Um, but there's a big difference between that and going, well, this was my experience and just, you know, being able to authentically say what your experience was and not being ashamed of it and just saying, well, this is what I did. And, yeah. you know, not saying better, or worse, not trying to glorify it, but just articulating what that meant. I think that's a big distinction. And um, I try to touch on that and bottled away too, for like just perspective, what it's like to not go out the wire and to like sit in a guard tower and watch your buddies roll out and maybe they'll come back and to explain the level of guilt you feel most days and how helpless you feel and how much that weighs on you emotionally, because it's like, and it's not like you're out of harm's way sitting in a guard box out on a chain link fence in the middle of nowhere, like stuff can happen. It didn't, 
thankfully, but there's the idea. And that's what a lot of it is for me, at least on deployment was, was what was going on in my head more than what was going on around me. Cause there's that anticipation that gets to you. And I was, I'm a very empathetic person. So watching my buddies roll out, it was just like, I can't do anything for you once you go out that gate. And so I tried to create that perspective of where some of us come from that sit behind that gate all day, every day. And that's a worthwhile thing. You know, there's, I mean, I'm particularly intrigued with the civ mill divide and, and as civilians try to understand the military mindset, the military experience and all that. Um, and I think what you're talking about and what you're writing about fills in a huge gap in civilians' knowledge, because I think a lot of people, um, their impression of the military is everybody's a SEAL or everybody's a Ranger or everybody's that because that's what I mean, that's what the movies are. And and that's not bad. I mean, those stories are incredible. We, you know, who doesn't love those stories? But that's not all the stories. Yeah. I mean, I mean, little survivors, ridiculous. I mean, that's just holy crap. But there's a lot of stories and there's a lot of stories that have gone unsaid and um, and unsaid, not even from uh, thankfully, not from any sort of top down peer pressure or anything like that. But I think a lot of it is an internal conflict where people think they're just not good enough to relate those stories. I think that's what you you certainly touched on and said and written about. And I think that's incredibly valuable because I do think there's an immense amount of good in that. I could see that, you know, when we talk about art having a therapeutic value, maybe initially, and then ultimately maybe having a professional value that that first part of therapy is feeling worthy enough to share those images. And that's where I I see a real tension with the veteran artist is I think the military part, you know, it, it, it is a hierarchy. You know, you're in an organization where there's, there's, you're hitting all these wickets and that tells you kind of what you've done and where you've been and, you know, what you've accomplished and all that. Whereas with art, it's not that kind of a structure. It's not an organization. It's a completely individual pursuit and it doesn't really care what you've done. It doesn't care who you are. You kind of either have a talent or you don't, and you either let that shine or you inhibit it. Um, And to the degree that you work to make it shine that's the value, but that's really it. And it's such a different world. And I feel like sometimes with um, those of us that kind of try to straddle those worlds, those two worlds do come into conflict that way because there's you're in the military. You wouldn't want to stand up and say, Hey, everybody listen to me. This is who I am. It's like, well, who the hell am I? But in art, you have to have that degree of, uh, of confidence that what you have to say is worthwhile. Right. For the most part, I mean, like, I definitely don't have the confidence. <laughs> really? You don't think you do? Uh, like, a lot of the stuff I put up, especially art-wise, like, I just hope for the best. Like, because I don't see the talent a lot of times with it because I have just tough critic. And so it's like, oh, I could have done this, could have done that. Like, I can nitpick the hell out of a painting. So I kind of put it out there and just it's like shit myself over it for a while because it's just like, Maybe some will like it. I'm sure plenty won't. And so, <laughs> and so, like, it's just that idea though, where it's like, I'm just going to share it and hope for the best. But I don't do it thinking, yeah, this is the shit. <laughs> like, what are you most comfortable in? What medium are you most comfortable in right now? Is it your painting? Is it your writing? Is it your poetry? Uh, it's probably the actual writing. It's 
but uh poetry has always kind of been like it's been for me so like for what I expect for myself like oh it's cool but I feel like if I was to compare it to other people's poetry where it's like uh not that great of a poet but writing wise I think I can articulate enough for people to understand things to where I feel like that's that's what I base it off of if you can understand what I'm trying to say (laughs) really so it's not really about kind of purging your soul it's about how much do you the audience get what I'm trying to put out there yeah, because my ba- it's like kind of with the the painting and stuff like that. I want to evoke something. I want to bring something up for you. I want this to create some sort of emotion or connection or make you dig into yourself. And so I feel like a lot of times with my writing, I have the easiest time doing that because painting, it can go either way or with drawings. Like some people like it, some people don't. I think some people just are quick to be like, I think that's crap. <laughs> like it's because mm. it's not my style or something like that. Like you don't have the right thing. So I feel like with art, sometimes it gets missed because people are just really set on, well, this isn't my type of art. Like if I show, if I went to a gallery here in Kansas and there's no sunflowers in my stuff or barns, like I'm not going to be considered a good artist because that's not what people are looking for out here. They want wow. that Midwest look. So I, if I come in with my skulls and snakes and crazy portraits, they're just kind of like, go back to where you came from. <laughs> like, you are definitely wow. from California. Like, that's really all I get off my stuff here is like, really? you're clearly from the West Coast. Hippie or something like no that. No kidding. <laughs> that's yeah. hilarious. It's weird. I, I wondered, that's strange to hear because I would have thought like now in 2021 when you've got access to stuff digitally so easily that probably everybody was singing off the same sheet of music oh okay i mean i i don't i think people i mean from what i've learned in kansas people are kind of stuck in their ways and uh yeah i mean that this place really made me feel like i was a crappy artist because it was like i will never (laughs) i will never get into the art museums here the galleries because i just don't i can't find a reason to draw a sunflower like that that is not or a sunset or something like that it was just like that that's too happy for me <laughs> like i can't is that can't. really have you tried to do shows have you tried to show your work out there not here because you just part before the first offense you just know that wouldn't it would never apply it, it just, it's just not what they're anyone's looking for i mean i could do maybe a one-man show somewhere where i set up and fund the whole thing or find somebody to help me do it but i don't know that it's going to get a very good like bring anybody in or whatever i feel like it'd be a waste of time do you have pieces for sale do you have pieces that you're you actually would sell oh yeah i have some (laughs) She said unconvincingly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do have a couple that are going to go for sale. The ones that were used to make like the cover for like East Payne, the poetry mm. book. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. one is an actual painting uh, that will go up once the series is done. Uh, all three of those books, uh, the two will be the same as the first with having a painting on the front. And a lot of the ones that have paintings in them, I have some of those still. I usually, as soon as I get done with one, though, I give it away or I go and set it out by the dumpster and let somebody take it because I just I do it for just to do it because it's my therapy. So I don't really do it with this idea that I'm going to sell it or gift it or whatever. It just it goes and it ends up wherever it ends up. Oh, okay. Stop putting (laughs) out by the fucking dumpster. That's ridiculous. (laughs) 
That's insane. There's a there's a lot of shit that's gone out to the dumpster. That's murals that have gone out to the dumpster. I mean, like I've just holy crap. Okay, seriously, don't ever. As your friend, I'm saying, don't ever fucking do that again. Your shit It'll probably is fucking happen good. Sometime within the next month. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Well, well, I'll, I'll talk to you offline about that. There might be <laughs> other homes for that. Dear God. Wait, so, yeah, that that's insane. That because uh, I mean, and anybody that doesn't believe me, I mean, go on Amazon, look at East Pain, look at the cover. I mean, that's just a a hint of the artwork that you do. And, uh, and and it's all, every painting in East Pain is one of my portraits that I've done that are floating around Kansas because I gave them away. I mean, giving away, I could deal with. Uh, leaving it by the dumpster where it risks being thrown away. That yeah, I don't is, know what's is, in the landfill here. <laughs> oh my freaking Lord. That's unacceptable. What, uh, right now, what's your op tempo for your creativity? Like, so obviously- husband's away you've got mothering duties and all that how much do you have time to do anything creatively not really okay because I, mean, I don't have it's more of i don't have the space to do it where like you have a kid coming in raising hell it's like having an easel set up is just asking for a disaster and i am one of those people when i paint like i got to do it in a very specific uh kind of mindset like you have to be there's that part of where you feel too good to paint because I'm someone that I think spends a lot of my creative time when I'm more towards being down in the dumps than when I feel good when I feel Mm. good I don't give a shit about creating art because I feel good and but if I feel too bad then I don't have the energy to do it so there's this real fine spot in between those of feeling good and feeling bad where it's like the perfect point of being creative and to hit that point and have everything else fall in line where the kids leaving me alone and there's nothing to no errands running all this stuff and life just aligns and the planets are perfect. Like everything's great. Then I can do it. And so when someone else is around, there's the extra hand when I hit that point in my emotions where it's like, okay, cool. You watch her. I got to go close myself off for a couple hours and create. And so being, so what do you do now? What do you do now when you're in that spot? Do you just suppress it and go, well, someday? I mean, it's really, you hit that spot and it's like, oh, I want to do something and then I can't. And then you just kind of tumble too far and then you get too depressed. And then it's like, okay, now it's just a matter of like, can I get out of this funk to just like get through a day? Because like I was talking about that, the latest painting I did when I put it up, talk about seasonal affective disorder. And so for me, this type of year, there's not a lot of creativity that happens in the wintertime because you go too far to that, to the, the dark side of emotions. And so for me, it's like, I can crank out paintings in summertime. Huh. And so like the painting I did uh, recently, that took me like a month or two. Cause I just kept kind of coming back to it. If I had done that in the summer, I could have done it in an hour or two, just cranked it out. Wow. What so. about the writing? Is the writing the same way or does that matter? What season it says? Uh, the writing still is one of those things where it's just like some days, like if I'm like on a jog, I can just be like, oh, huh, that'd be great to talk about and like put down some pointers and stuff like that. Uh, I think that's where the podcast really comes into place for me when I can't write is that I can jot down some points I want to touch on and then I can just go on there then or whatever I got to do. And so I have ways of kind of filling in when I can't do the things I want to do. So like with the husband gone again, it's like, okay, I guess I'll 
record an episode or something like that. Yeah. It's not as fulfilling. Yeah. The podcast out of everything I do is the least fulfilling of all the stuff I do for like mental health. And so really what I would like to do is be able to like go sit by myself and draw a picture or write some poems, but it's just not, it's not like realistic right now. Do you, um, do you still do poetry though? Is that still, are you still able to churn that out regardless? Yeah. That's good. Uh, I've had two because of how I've structured wanting to do these books. I have the ones that were pretty much already written and I just have to clean them up for the book one and two. And the third book, because of how empty it is, I actually have to start writing some poems and I don't really have a designated theme for it. So it's just kind of like the free flow and themes or whatever comes to mind. So there's a lot of like Kansas (laughs) in it. And uh, just random stuff or talk about what it's like growing up by the beach, stuff like that. So it's just a different aspect. So I could get away from the heavy stuff that I talk about in the military and domestic violence. Yeah. How does that feel writing that? Does it it's feel harder? Oh, really? Why? Yeah. Just doesn't come I mean, to I think, quickly. I think things like domestic violence and military sexual trauma and stuff like that, it brings up a lot of really strong emotions. So like there's just a lot to put out just because you're working through so much more, but then to sit and like talk about a sunset. It's like, how can I, (laughs) you know, it's like, it takes a little bit more to like for me to paint that picture for somebody with words than it is with talking about something that's a lot more emotional and heavy and traumatic, because I think I always rest on that dark side of things. And so really jacked up things (laughs) create uh, a lot of creative energy for me. And so it's I'm sure the third book will be the hardest one I have to do because it it's not going to be a traumatic. <laughs> yeah. Thing. So. Are you still actively writing new stuff? Do you still find that a lot of your poetry just ends up, you're like, yeah, that's from scratch or, or do you really just go back to your original source material and try to edit and hone it and get it ready for publication now? Uh, I'm trying to add new stuff. I'm trying to kind of get away from the older thing. I think I'm finally hitting that point of like, I'm tired of being the veteran in the past. And so I'm trying to get to that point of like, what do I write about now? That's not so military related or so domestic violence related. Like, what am I now outside of that? Now that I've gotten through it and it's a little bit harder to write about because it's not very interesting in my opinion, because it's not all this stuff going on, but it's this idea of like, uh, kind of come in full circle of just like, okay, we got through all that. What yeah. do you go after? And so yeah. where you go after is a little less enthusiastic sometimes. I'm hoping that once we PCS and stuff like that, like maybe something, some other adventure will come up to write about. Uh, that's not Kansas. <laughs> Kansas has not really uh, helped me find a lot of inspiration. <laughs> You're not inspired by just, long big flat spaces that doesn't that doesn't get you going get your creative juices flowing i'm just too busy counting cows when i'm driving down the interstate like there's really yeah grass oh god yeah well i mean listen that is that's the uh that's the grind right that's that's where i i guess kind of the men from the boys separate right because you you it's now it's not being spoon fed to you. The drama is not going to be a spoon fed, hopefully. Yeah. And hopefully. instead now it's, and, and instead now it's, it, it is finding, yeah. What else do you have to say besides that? Um, if there is anything else to say, I'm kind of at that point of like, 
have I said all that can be said? And now I just can let it go. Like, do I, it's an interesting where do I go point. now? Yeah. Yeah. And you know something, and, and I think, and this is, I think what also makes our, our particular community. So, so unique is I think we do, I think it's okay to look at it that way and go, if you've said all you have to say for right now, I mean, even if it's for decades, it's like, okay, well then I'm good. Like I got back to where I needed to be. And we do see art more therapeutically than I think the civilian population does, you know, kids that were bred from embryos to be artists. And like, you're going to grow up to be an actor or a writer or something like that. It's like, there's that pressure to always write or always act. And sometimes you're just not in that place and it's, and it's okay. That's life. So you don't have to force it if it's not there. And I think vets are cool going, yeah, I didn't, wasn't wedded to this anyway. I was trying to do this to get myself right. and And I was speaking for a bigger purpose and there is something, um, there is something noble about that and, and fighting that fight. That said, I hope you do keep writing anyway, because those books were tough, um, but they were enjoyable. They were relatable. They were um, something I, I know has done a lot of good. And I, I, you know, and I certainly like your art. I, I think your art, you know, I, you know, certainly not a lot of people are not going to go, boy, I can't wait to read about domestic violence today. But I, <laughs> I think, I think most days people would be very happy to see the artwork that you've done. Because that stuff is really truly outstanding, so that I certainly hope continues. That's I'm looking just forward for me to uh, the poetry book's going to be coming out in hardcover within like the next month or so. So it'll be in color. Betcha. So the, okay. Paintings and the stuff in it will be cooler. <laughs> so this will be this this episode will air in January. You're you're uh, by the way you're kicking off 2022 for yeah. us. So you're the inaugural. So. At that point, is the hard copy, is the hardcover out at that point? I'm going to, I'm aiming for a January 1st release, uh, Okay, but they, they take a long time to get from Amazon because they got to piece those together. So you're looking at like a month before you're able to actually have a copy. Okay. And I always try to order before I promote too much because I want to make sure it looks right. Yeah. 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 Everybody, and then I'm like, oh, buy this book. It's amazing. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Okay. All right. We'll put yeah. that adviso out. So, That'd be yeah. awesome though. I, I'm, I'm really stoked. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll get the, I've already got the paperback, but um, if the hard copy has even better art than. Yeah. All my hard copies, I always try to do color so that they just have that other I've told like my husband's like, ah, oh, the black and white's way better because it has this essence to it. And I was just like, whatever, dude, it's going in color. <laughs> <laughs> So maybe people can buy both copies. They can see which one they like more. Yeah. Yeah. Push more books. All right, Lonnie, listen, um, you rock, you rock for taking this much time on a Sunday to talk. Um, I will put out all the links to everybody. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're just hitting all the stereotypes. A Sunday in Kansas, nothing else to do. Just living. Bars closed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's right. Oh my God. Dear God, that's right. And you are, you're living out a stereotype right now. Prohibition. <laughs> oh my God. That's hilarious. All right. Well, um, if I had a drink here, I'd rub it in your face and, and, and toast you right now, but I don't. So I've, I've lost that opportunity, but being here in New York, I can go get some booze if I needed to in a, in a pinch. <laughs> anyway, listen, you rock. This was awesome. Hey, thanks for having me. That was the savage wonder of Lonnie Hankins. 
You've been listening to Savage Wonder, the podcast for warriors and artists, and a production of the Veterans Repertory Theater. The opinions expressed do not represent anything or anyone other than the speaker. If you want to know what's going on with us at the Veterans Repertory Theater, check it out at vetrep.org. That's V-E-T-R-E-P dot org. We are a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. And we have a lot of stuff going on, a lot of lines of effort. If you like the written word, if you love reading fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, subscribe to the Savage Wonder Literary Blog. Best way to do that is to go to vetrep.org, go to our Now Playing tab, and you will see the option to go right to our Substack and follow us, subscribe to our literary blog. You can also go to vetrep.org to the Now Playing tab as well and subscribe to the podcast. So if you haven't subscribed already, that's a great place to do it. Or, of course, you can just do it wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you're on iTunes, we would love your five-star review. Uh, You can say whatever you want to us. We love feedback. We love to hear constructive criticism, even deconstructive criticism. As long as you can attach to a five-star review, that would be outstanding. Another great place to find out what's going on with us, check out what's going on with us at Instagram. You can find us at VetRepTheater, V-E-T-R-E-P Theater or on Twitter, at Vet Rep Theater, or if you're on Facebook, at Veterans Repertory Theater. As I say every week, I know nobody knows how to spell repertory, so I'll spell it here. It's at Veterans Repertory, R-E-P-E-R-T-O-R-Y Theater. That's E-R, not R-E. It's the American spelling. If you want to submit your work to Vet Rep or to our literary blog, go to vetrep.org again. Go to the Submissions tab. And there you will have every option at your fingertips. Submit to whatever channel of ours that you would like. We're always happy to get submissions from veterans and those that we qualify as veterans, which is a bit broader definition than um, the VA would define it because we include law enforcement, fire, EMS, intelligence services, even DOD contractors. We put a lot of people under that umbrella. Um, So go there, check it out. All the details are at vetrep.org under the submissions tab. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. On behalf of the Veterans Repertory Theater, see you next time when we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all.